1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm an instructor at McMaster University. I'm very excited to be speaking today with Dr. Kate Crawford, who is, among other things, the co-founder of the AI Now Institute, a professor at USC Annenberg, and senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research. Last year, she published Atlas of AI. A deep investigation into the physical materials, human labor, data, and political ideas behind artificial intelligence with Yale University Press. And that's what we're going to be talking about
0: today. Kate Crawford, welcome. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Could you start by uh, saying a bit about your own background, maybe your educational background, your history, and how you came to be interested in the field of AI?
0: Mm. Well, we could go far, far back into my history and say that, that possibly uh, it was the very early years when I actually was an electronic musician and producer. Um, and again, this being um, in the 20th century, the late 20th century, it was quite rare to have women who were electronic music you know, music makers. Um, And it was something about that relationship between machines, culture and gender that I thought was particularly interesting. Um, And it certainly drew me towards fields like uh, STS, science and technology studies, uh, histories of technology and media studies. But I was also very interested in computer programming, which certainly at the time I needed to use a lot in terms of the music that I was making. So these ideas, I think, certainly infused for me very early on. Um, And then after I did a PhD and I had been a professor for a decade or so, I was invited to join an industrial research lab. And that was just at the time that machine learning was really taking off at the sort of end of the first decade of the sort of 2000s and early 2010s and to see the extraordinary shift in the way that data was being processed in terms of the way that the world was being interpreted was just transforming for me and thus began you know what is now you know almost a 20 year research track in trying to understand the wider social political and environmental implications of the turn to ai
1: yeah, that's that's fascinating. Could you maybe say a bit more about yeah, what happened in the uh, late aughts or early tens of this decade that made this field uh, so financially lucrative and the site of so much energy and hype, and then subsequently so much uh, critical investigation and maybe even backlash?
0: Mm. Well, this, it's a combination of factors, really. I mean, certainly, so many of the techniques that we see as being part of contemporary artificial intelligence, these are the techniques under the sort of clustered heading of machine learning, um, have been around for for many decades. But what really shifted in the 2000s was, first of all, the expansion of the internet and the ability to scrape large amounts of data, which could then be used uh, to produce essentially large-scale models that were trained on that data. And we also have the expansion of computational power, um, which gets a lot cheaper in those years as well. And we have the rise of a small group of tech companies that have services and platforms where that data is sort of coming in every day. You can think of the you know, hundreds of billions of, of words and images coming in from Facebook or Twitter and Google and the like. So we start to see this real consolidation of power in the tech sector. And we also start to see the sort of s- quite extraordinary scaling of a lot of these systems um, at a global level. So companies themselves sort of take on some of the kind of characteristics of parastates, you know, transnational entities that are in some ways sort of acting beyond the reach of single nation states to control and legislate at the same time as we see the rise of this very sort of neural network based form of of machine learning. And, you know, at the moment, I think you're starting to see a sort of cultural shift, certainly um, in the early 2000s, it was a, a place that was all about excitement and hype and, you know, Facebook was the latest, greatest thing, just stay in touch with your friends. Um, and, it you know, it really took many years for people to see the problems that come alongside these systems and to see that, you know, Facebook is also an enormous harvesting engine that created the biggest, you know, facial recognition system that the world had ever seen um, and to see the politics at work in these systems and and the 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 power that they have is sort of centralizing particular ways of sharing and using information. So, you know, you could certainly think about where we are now as a particular type of tech lash, but speaking as, as, you know, an academic who's been working in this field for so long, um, there are much longer trajectories of tech, you know, criticism and skepticism and concern that that really do go decades back. And, And that's certainly the tradition from which, you know, I've learned so much. And I think in that sense, the sort of fashions about, you know, what's cool right now, obviously, you know, Bitcoin and crypto uh, and NFTs are are all the rage. Um, But so many of the concerns that I raise in Atlas of AI also pertain to this wave, you know, they're profoundly energy intensive and enormously damaging to the environment. They, you know, create particular types of power concentrations while at the same time denying their own sort of material influences. So, you know, I think you could certainly map those trends onto where we are right now as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that I really appreciated uh, in the book is that it completely uh, does not buy into the maybe internalist narrative that you would read in h- historical uh books about AI namely that it was very exciting in the you know f- f- late 40s early 50s 60s and then all the funding went away then all the funding came back in the 80s and then all the funding came back in the 2010s and there's kind of these cycles of you know d- of, of excitement and then despair and what you've done in this book is really zoom out and say okay <laughs> like Look, looking at it from a much broader socioeconomic political lens. What are the physical materials being harvested? What are the concentrations of power enabled by this technology? And it's clear that those things don't observe, you know, <laughs> 30-year hype cycles, right? Um, they, they, there's kind of constant um, phenomena. But but maybe before we get into that, I'd love to just uh, take one step back and ask maybe just about the term Artificial intelligence. The book is called Atlas of AI. What what is it exactly that is being um, analyzed when we use that term?
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, the term artificial intelligence can be traced back to the mid-1950s. Uh, and we can go back to a particular conference, the Dartmouth conference, where a small collection of male computer scientists gathered and said, let's let's start to think about computational systems as being able to take on cognitive capacities. But I think at the same time, this term is a real trap. Um, in fact, in the book, I say that AI is neither artificial nor intelligent. And, and what I mean by that is that if we think about this concept of artificiality, it's so common that people hear about AI as something Immaterial, abstract, uh, objective in the cloud, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, as just so many sort of mathematical approaches and algorithms. And very rarely are we forced to contend with the profoundly material practices that subtend all of the AI systems that we're familiar with using today. So, what does it actually take to make, you know, amazon alexa actually speak to you and say oh you know today's weather it will snow you know what is that process and so for me as a researcher i spent sort of five years tracing where those kind of specific systems come from and how much energy it takes to actually run them which is of course just extreme and the number of you know points of human labor all along the supply chain we so rarely realize that AI is powered by human bodies. you know you have people in the mines you know extracting the rare earth minerals and cobalt and lithium that powers all of our computational devices. but you also have click workers who are labeling the images and, and the sound files that are used to then train AI systems. So all of these kinds of material realities are so often hidden from view when we hear about AI. So to really critique that idea of it being artificial and to show that, in fact, to bring it down from the clouds and to ground it in the earth and to see what it really costs from a planetary perspective. And then in terms of this idea of intelligence, I mean, this is another kind of mystification of the systems that we use, that we are told that they are intelligent, in some cases, exceeding human intelligence. Certainly when uh, AlphaGo was launched by DeepMind, there were so many articles sort of describing, you know, this, this games engine as superhuman, as an alien intelligence, um, as something that is sort of both enchanted and deterministic. Uh, sort of this term, enchanted determinism, is something that I developed with the uh, historian of science, Alex Campolo, and the way in which these tools are seen to be sort of magical and, and beyond human understanding, but at the same time, deterministic in that they can look at a set of data and then very reliably predict what is to come. And I think these types of of myths and ideologies that permeate AI are so problematic. And we could even trace all the way back to how this term intelligence itself has been used to demarcate populations, to be used in pursuit of, you know, Eugenic projects and projects that you know claimed that you could detect which race was more intelligent than another. You know the term itself has done so much harm um, over the centuries that yet again I think it's it's a word that we have to be very critical of. In this context, you can look at these systems as effectively just being large scale. Statistical pattern recognition. (laughs) That is quite different to intelligence in a human context. And I think that elision of when we confuse one for the other can actually be quite dangerous.
1: I want to go in a bit deeper because I I think um, one of the things that's most striking the more that you learn about this field is, to your point... uh, you know, building these devices requires a huge amount of physical materials. You know, the cloud is not a it's not a utopic place in the sky. It's like some big server. The cloud is someone else's computer. You know, somewhere in the desert, hidden from view. Um, uh, the the uh, machine learning models require a massive amount of data. Uh, oftentimes that data needs to be labeled and that data needs to be labeled by people. So people are paid, uh, you know, often very low wages to label the data, but the average user of, uh, you know, their their iPhone or or whatever it is, does not know about this. Um, And I, you know, you tell a story in the book about how you have to, you know, kind of almost secretively uh, like drive to these, you know, hidden locations to even see these, these, these servers or these mines. How is it possible that so much of the labor and physical materials and work being done by the like largest public corporations on earth is so uh, hidden from view and that it takes this kind of pretty uh, deep, investigation to be able to even reveal that kind of thing to the public?
0: Mm. Well, there's a there's a kind of practical sort of political economy uh, to answer that question, but there's also a philosophical way to answer that question. So I'll, I'll give you both. On one side, we can think about the way in which these companies you know, obscure the types of impacts of their systems as really being part of a long tradition where, you know, certainly if we, we look at sort of centuries of mining practices they've always been based on sort of hiding the the true costs to the environment you know uh, if we go back to sort of the, the 1500s when agricola the sort of father of mineralogy said that you know mining only works it only creates profits because miners do not have to pay for the full costs of what they do and this is true of any kind of large scale industrial corporation in the 21st century is that there are these Externalized costs, which you know are, are always removed from the full story, but if we look at the sort of philosophical lens, you know, Hart and Negri, you know, uh, well-known um, philosophers of information capitalism, talk about this relationship between abstraction and extraction, that these industries abstract away, you know, their true consequences um, and what they do in terms of their deeper forms of extraction. And when we look at AI, it is an industry premised on extraction of many kinds. So we absolutely, we can look at the mineralogical layer, we could look at energy and sort of the carbon footprint of AI, which is also enormous and expanding rapidly. But we can also think about those extractions from human bodies, about the click workers who are being paid on average less than $2 an hour to make these systems that generate enormous profits for their owners. Of course, some of the richest men in the world um, are men who are, you know, heading up companies like Amazon. Um, So we can sort of see those sort of extraordinary income disparities and extractions there too and then of course finally powering the entire system is data extraction everything that we do online or even in physical environments is being extracted to train more ai systems so in that sense this sort of relationship between the way that we're told a very abstract story um, is really part of how these extractions are really hidden from view
1: can you say a bit more about the word extraction? I, I made I made a note of that in my uh, when while I was reading the book that 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 word came up again and again and again. Does it have a history itself in kind of this investigation, or was that a word that you latched onto um, as a as an as a descriptor of so much of what's going on in this industry?
0: Well, it's interesting as a term; it's used a lot in relation to data. So we can certainly think about. the the types of data extraction that are written about. You know, there are terms like data mining and the the phrase that data is the new oil. Um, These metaphors of extraction are very plentiful when you are reading about data practices and machine learning. But I found very, very similar sorts of relationships in traditional mining, the traditional mining that, of course, powers so many of these systems, and in relation to labor. So certainly for me, it was more about sort of Going to these places, you know, writing this book was very much a journey where I traveled around the world to go and see these sites of extraction and to see that extraction really is this theme that unites them, that unites the sort of relationship to data, to labor and to the environment. Um, So it it was kind of quite a powerful realization for me that you could see this kind of pattern of behavior across these very different terrains
1: yeah some, something that i that also came to mind while reading was um especially in the first chapter that that was a, that was about mining and that was about data was how much of this is necessarily about ai right when i think about ai i think about machine learning neural networks i think about very specific techniques and technologies for automating some processes but It seemed to me, at least, that a lot of the writing that was about uh, the the physical materials required to build uh, computing devices was almost independent of that. It was like I'm looking at now my computer and my monitor and my iPhone going, "Ugh, even if there's even if there's no machine learning on here, you know, I'm still kind of participating in this thing. You mentioned crypto. That is not AI, but it's still part of the same pattern. So, how much of this is actually in fact about AI and how much is AI just one kind of subset of a broader industrial phenomenon?"
0: I love this question, because I think the answer is both. Um, Certainly, so many of these uh, uh, political economies that I trace in the book can really be talked about in terms of just computation and histories of computation. But there is something very particular to this moment in AI that is only made possible because of the histories of capitalism and industrialization that have brought us to this point so all of the you know the ways in which these systems can be used to extract data and produce a profit is because we have planetary scale infrastructures. We have a highly concentrated cloud architecture where there's really only four companies in the world that have that type of planetary scale. Um, it, it also means that you know artificial intelligence as a technique could only become possible because of that profusion of you know, iPhones and laptops and service space and compute cycles that, again, simply wasn't possible if we go back to the nineteen eighties, where we started to see, you know, that that moment that you mentioned in AI history, where there is a, a backlash in funding, where there's a moment where there's an AI winter, if you will, um, and so you, I think in some ways we could think about artificial intelligence as a product of this moment in the history of both capitalism and industrialization generally. So in that sense, I think it's emblematic of how we got to this place and, and understanding its wider kind of products and, and its consequences is actually part of what it is to understand why it is that we actually have these conveniences and and, and who's actually really paying for them.
1: Hmm. One thing that uh, I'm often asked in my classes when um when people want to know what AI is, is I, br- I bring up the fact that the term AI has often been used to describe, you know, whatever has not been done yet. <laughs> um, you know, at, at, there was a time when the red squiggly line on Microsoft Word that tells you if you've misspelled something was, you know, that was considered AI because that's the frontier. Now, that's not as data intensive as massive language models like GPT-3 that can, you know, write, write a story for you. But maybe the concern around that framing is that if we just um, agree that, you know, the latest AI is just going to become part of the infrastructure of computing, is that scary in some way? Because it just means that these bigger and bigger models, more and more computation, larger and larger, like monopolistic relationships among the top corporations. Do you see that uh, as a worrying trend in that sense?
0: Mm, I mean, you've hit on something really important here, which is that right now, and I mean literally just in the last 24 months, um, we've seen a consolidation of an approach in artificial intelligence generally, which is a sort of move towards what are called sort of large-scale models, or some people use the term uh, foundation models. So GPT-3 is a classic case in point. GPT-3 is a an ai model that was trained on the common crawl which is a huge data set which has come from scraping the internet of you know so many sites from you know news to chat forums to reddit you name it which then becomes this enormous corpus to train a model that can then predict what the sentence might be after we've said something, right? So GPT-3 can sometimes feel kind of extraordinary because if you give it a sentence, it will just start to, to offer you a profusion of paragraphs that could come from that, that, that almost sometimes look like they've been human generated. But this uh, turn to large language and large image models has also meant just enormous amounts of energy and enormous amounts of data to actually train them. So in some ways, I, I tend to think of these as, as the megafauna of AI, like these gigantic sort of, you know, almost sort of dinosaur level creatures that at the same time are just hugely resource intensive. Now, this has become the trend right now. So this, this push towards large models is happening, of course, at exactly the same moment that you know, we are in a very perilous point in terms of climate change and stress to the planet. So it is this extraordinary kind of combination of techniques that are, I think, profoundly energy intensive and, and problematic. At the same time, as we urgently need to be going the other way, we need to be thinking about how do we conserve energy, how do we produce computational techniques that are actually, you know, far more in harmony with, you know, a a limited data environment and with using sort of things like zero-shot learning, for example. Um, So it's, you know, you've pointed to something that is a a big concern because we we really are in in so many ways going in the wrong direction.
1: Hmm. You know, as you were saying that, it uh, it dawned on me that there's there's almost a narrative that, you know, the computers used to be huge, you know, the ENIAC and the Mark One and all these big computers in the 1940s. You see them, it took a train, you know, to transport a computer somewhere. And now a computer is tiny, it can fit in your pocket. But it almost seems like... Uh, it's the opposite <laughs> in the sense that uh, the computers there were huge but there weren't that many of them and uh, they didn't you know they weren't that uh, energy intensive to to produce but now everyone has one and it's like the extractive toll on the earth is so disproportionate to the you know to the actual size of the uh, of the microprocessor I don't know if there's a a, a poetic kind of or, or slightly <laughs> dystopian framing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. They're, these these systems are often referred to as AI supercomputers, but there are very many of them. And of course, they're, they're based in these sort of large scale sort of stack infrastructures um, that are sort of dotted around the planet. Um, and you've also pointed to another dynamic, which is that the amount of compute that's used to produce very, very small increments in uh, essentially the ability for something to you know tag an image more accurately is quite eye opening when you see it it's it's you know we've reached this point in sort of computational cycles in fact open ai recently um, published their figures that the computational demands are now doubling every three months so that means that in just a few years our computational demands have gone up three hundred thousand times and that's just on their own data so you can imagine you know for sort of large-scale companies that are much bigger than open ai what those numbers look like there so you're absolutely right
1: yeah I think it's really hard, you know, um, that when you do things over the internet or even when you use Wi-Fi, it feels like it's happening nowhere, (laughs) you know, like uh, it feels like you're just tapping into a network and you're just, it's you and the other computers, but if you really were able to see, you, you, I almost kind of want a movie that's like the electron eyes eyed view of you know when I when I use GPT three or whatever it is on my computer, where actually is all this information going? And I think it, to your point, it's, it would be pretty uh, pretty staggering if you were able to actually see it, you know, kind of in the flesh. And yeah, is, I mean, yeah.
0: It, I've, I've often wondered that too. And it's, it's funny. Several people have said to me, you know, I wish you'd made this a film at the same time as you're writing. And I'm like, I know, you know, I tried to write it as, you know, as much as, as like a journey as possible so that I really sort of take people to these locations in the book. But it's, it's really tempting to have that sort of visualization as well. And interestingly, you know, Part of the the work that I do as a researcher is that I also collaborate with visual artists, almost as a way of, of showing the different ways you can depict these you know extraordinary large scale computational systems that in so many ways are almost too large to grasp. You know, Timothy Morton uses the idea of, of hyper objects, like things which are too big to see, like climate change or you know artificial intelligence at scale. Um, and I did a collaboration with an extraordinary artist called Vladan Jola, where we. Did a large-scale visualization. It was about sort of seven feet by five feet of all of the things that it takes to build a single Amazon Echo. So you know, we started by drawing all of the data pipelines and how it works to you know extract data and, and then to, to sort of build models for voice recognition. But then we went further back and we started to look at sort of the mines, where the components came from. We looked at the smelting practices, we looked at the container ships, and then all the way through to the end of life where these devices are thrown away in these gigantic e-waste tips in places like Ghana and Pakistan. And in doing that project and in visualizing that system, it was what really kind of, for me, transformed me as a writer and as a researcher, to say... We need to do this now, not just for a single device like, you know, the Amazon Echo, but for the entire AI industry itself. And so that was really the genesis of Atlas of AI. Mm-hmm.
1: Fascinating. And you do have, um, yeah, there th- there are some phenomenal visualizations uh, that 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 you have produced and that that others have that I would that would highly uh, encourage people to look up. But I'd ra- I'd love to turn. We don't have that much time. There's so much to cover for the second half of this uh, conversation on, yeah, on the idea of data itself. Um, as we've kind of touched on, uh, modern AI relies, uh, on massive data sets to operate. And as we said, one of the reasons that this industry has been able to grow so massive is the proliferation of the internet and the growth of largely freely available data in the form of, uh, Facebook pictures, text on the internet, um, people's public profiles, all sorts of things, uh, video camera footage that is now just, uh, readily available. Um, I'd love to get into kind of the politics of it and the ontologies and all this kind of really, really sophisticated stuff, but maybe just to just to lay the groundwork, um, what exactly do we even mean when we use the word data? How has that term been kind of uh, reformulated or used rhetorically um, over the last decade? And why is it so important to the field of AI?
0: Mm. I mean, it's there are some fascinating stories about how we came to this place where we use the term data to mean, just about anything um, and for me you know one of the stories that i think is so fascinating that i address in the book is what happened in the 1970s and 80s at ibm's continuous speech recognition lab um, and i'm very influenced here by a fantastic media historian by the name of chow cheng li who has spent you know, enormous amounts of time in the archives um, looking at sort of the documentation of the practices at ibm the thing that I find so interesting there is that there was this moment where you know, IBM was trying to effectively model speech for computers so that computers could understand language. And they were using you know, linguistic principles and you know, sort of grammatical rules in what was called the expert systems approach of artificial intelligence. But when they hired a, sort of, a new researcher, Fred Jelinek, to come and try a different approach, he decided... To move towards data his his vision was rather than trying to ki- really teach computers to understand language why don't we just see this as an issue of statistics let's just see how often words appear in relation to each other and effectively moving towards what is known as uh, brute force approaches or probabilistic approaches. And this is referred to generally as the statistical turn, as this move away from understanding meaning or context or history, and just moving towards data. And so Jelinek and his team at, at IBM then start trying to gather as, as many sources of, sort of, of, of data as they can, which for them, you know, they they turned to IBM technical manuals, which of course didn't work very well because they don't actually sound like the way that we speak as humans. You know, they tried children's books, they tried, you know, people's uh, secretarial notes and, and nothing was quite enough until they had, of course, this extraordinary trove of data that came from an antitrust suit. Uh, against IBM, which ran for 13 years, and of course created this huge corpus of, of you know, of witness testimony and so forth. And there you see this sort of move away from this being thought of as language to being referred to as data. And uh, back then, Robert Mercer, who was working at the lab, and this was long before he became the reclusive billionaire that he is today, you know, famous for funding everything from Trump's campaign to Cambridge Analytica, back in uh, 1985, he used the phrase, there's no data like more data. Hmm. And that became really the phrase that defined the AI industry. And it just shows us how everything became seen to be data, and it was only important if there was more of it. And that, I think, is a kernel of truth, and we're sort of living the consequences of that shift today.
1: Hmm. Is it not? Well, I mean, uh, is it in some sense true? I mean, like Rich Rich Sutton, the uh, reinforcement learning researcher, wrote this article, The Bitter Lesson, right? And my understanding is that the, the quote-unquote bitter lesson is that the, the, what we've learned from decades of doing AI research is that it doesn't matter how much we try to program in meaning and context and syntax and logic and inferential, whatever, uh, that stuff is all irrelevant. All that matters is more data. Um, these rule-based approaches are, are always inferior in, in, in some sense to just feeding the computer more information that it can then kind of uh, generate patterns from. Mm.
0: I mean, it's interesting. There's certainly an argument. And and this was noted, in fact, you know, back in the 1980s at IBM, you know, Fred Jelinek would would comment on the fact that, you know, every time he fired a linguist, his system would perform better, you know, so it was, you know, he said quite clearly that we we were using the ideas from from physics uh, and thinking like physicists, not thinking like linguists. And I think that's produced things like GPT-3, where we can have, you know, a model that can predict what the next sentence might be if you give it a sentence. But if you spend much time with GPT-3, you'll also find that it spews out some of the most horrific forms of hate speech and, you know, dehumanizing phrases about women, about people of color, about, you know, you name it, the horrible things that are contained within GPT-3 are there because of exactly that same attitude, which is that all data is equivalent, it doesn't matter what the context is, and it doesn't matter if we try to sort of really think about the way that language is so multivalent, it can do so many things, it can mean so much. So part of the reason we've had such problems with AI systems producing discriminatory outcomes, you know, using, you know, horrifically dehumanizing speech and so forth, is because of precisely that attitude, that it can form coherent sentences, yes, but those sentences can be filled with just the worst that humanity has come up with because, of course, it has been scraped from the flotsam and jetsam of the internet, and at every word is seen to be equivalent to the next. And that flattening out of meaning, that sort of loss of of rich context and history, I think is a very serious loss. And I think one of the problems that we have, I think the bitter lesson is that it was assumed that as long as something more or less worked, it didn't matter what politics came along with it. And I think there's a, you know, there's, there's a response to Rich Sutton's bitter lesson is that the more bitter lesson is that we've now got systems that are really doing things that are harming, in many cases, marginalized populations in ways that are just absolutely unacceptable.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, that's a really great framing. And I think that nowhere is this um, idea that, you know, um, all data is not a uh, Made equal, or may, maybe even this idea that all data is kind of uh, theory laden or political. There's no kind of neutral, flattened, meaningless data. I think you really um, bring that out in a, in a, in a very evocative way in, in the book when you talk about uh, images specifically. Uh, we've been talking for a little bit about uh, te- text generation and language, but there's a whole other um, side of this, which is um, computer vision. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could say a bit about. Um, how it is even possible that um, labeled pictures of images can be political? For instance, if I was just presenting this for the first time, I might see a picture of an apple and I say that's an apple. Uh, where, where, where is the politics? Well, you know, you know, in that. But um, it's obviously much more complicated uh, than that. So yeah, how can labeled pictures be a political object?
0: Such a good question. And and, and this brings me to, I think, one of the most important training data sets, certainly of the last decade, uh, in terms of object recognition, which is this data set called ImageNet, which is first published in 2009. And it was based on this idea that if you just have a whole lot of nouns, like apple, and then you scrape the internet for a whole lot of images, say of apples, um, and you connect that label to those images, this would actually be a very powerful way to train systems to detect objects. And this sounds, you know, completely logical, until you actually start really investigating it. And, you know, here, this was, you know, work that he did with another artist by the name of Trevor Paglin. Uh, we spent three years, you know, excavating uh, this, this training data set. And, and we use this term, you know, very consciously to sort of, to talk about the experience of sifting through the layers of a data set that has 14 million images in it and 20,000 categories and, and to look at what was inside it and what were the sort of ideas around how things were classified. And it was when we looked into the category of people inside ImageNet that we really started to see how problematic these logics are. Now, ImageNet, of course, you know, used nouns that it inherited from an earlier training set called WordNet with the idea that, you know, nouns are things that can depict images. Now, of course, there are some nouns which might seem relatively, you know, problematic like apple but nouns change you know of course here I'm thinking of George Lakoff's work where he says that you know some nouns are more nouny than others so you know you might think of a noun like light as being well that's actually kind of a, a, a more difficult thing more abstract to represent and then even more abstract would be a noun like debtor you know what it is to be in debt um now these are all nouns and in fact are things that are represented inside ImageNet. And so there are images of people that have been labeled as debtors. There are images of people labeled as kleptomaniacs, as alcoholics, as slatterns, as, you know, and and the words just become more and more and more offensive until we have things that are literally unrepeatable on your podcast. Um, And they're all there with thousands of images of people that have been scraped off the internet. These are people who have no idea that their graduation photograph or their, or their wedding pics have been labeled with these really offensive and problematic terms. There are also terms that might seem unproblematic. So CEO, for example, until you open up the categories of images and you see who is listed as a CEO, and it's almost all white men in suits. And then if you look at the category of basketballer, you see almost entirely black men playing basketball. So you start to see a political logic which is completely, you know, hidden and not disclosed by the system as though it is just presenting the world. And of course, there is no neutral, even the sort of the most sort of simplistic terms or nouns that seem uncontroversial. They are still presenting a worldview that is in itself quite narrow and normalizing. So part of really spending a lot of time with these data sets has taught me, you know, this one very important lesson, which is there is no such thing as a neutral data set. There is no system that does not at the same time have a deep ideological and political perspective that is baked into it from the very beginning, which also means that you can't just run a you know a bias filter or you know just take out the offensive labels and somehow think that you've produced a neutral data set. So all of these systems bring with them ways of seeing and ways of knowing the world. And it's so important that we begin to study and understand that. Otherwise, we're just rolling out these systems into our healthcare, into criminal justice, into education, without realizing what impacts they'll truly have.
1: Right. Could you say just a little bit more about the actual process by which images go from being on wherever they come from, Flickr or Imgur or whatever these websites are, and then are they given to a specific person with a list of nouns and told, okay, label this person a CEO or a basketball player or whatever, something, debtor, debtor or whatever it is, and it's one label per image per person? How does that actual yeah, ca- categorization process work?
0: You're very close. So, you know, what's interesting about ImageNet is that um, it was designed just after the creation of what was then a new service, which was Amazon's Mechanical Turk. And this is effectively... A distributed labor force where people are you know, predominantly in the global south but you know but also in the global north are uh, they're working and they will be presented with a screen and they're paid you know really pennies per click and they're you're know, asked to do a particular type of task so for image net you know i've actually gone back and looked at the sort of task windows that they were given and they were essentially given you know 50 images and said you know you have one minute to you know label these images as either part of this category or not part of this category. So, you know, it's it's very kind of tiring labor where you're really just sort of, you know, looking at an image and saying, you know, is this a cat or is this not a cat? But at the same time, you're not really aware of, you know, what is this being used for? Or, you know, can I say, you know, this person, I, I don't know if this person is a debtor or a, or a CEO. How could I possibly tell? Because it's not a visual concept. Um, they're not really given as, as click workers the ability to have that sort of, Critical feedback. And I think that's one of the the, the very real problems in terms of the way that labor is organized around AI. Only the AI designers get to say what a system will mean and they outsource all of the labor of actually creating these kind of core ground truths. And it's interesting too that you know in the case of ImageNet, they didn't just trust the click workers either in terms of their definitions. They had an algorithm that would then assess whether multiple people would label an image the same way. So they were also being ranked, you know, unbeknownst to them in terms of their labeling. So if something had a high level of consensus, it would then indeed become part of a category, which is even more remarkable when you spend time looking at the images that are in these categories. And in many cases, you just see errors as well as things that are, you know, offensive or problematic. They're just things that are wrong or make no sense or illogical. So that sort of profound profusion of images Ideas and images and categories mixing into each other, and, and you know, just this Borgesian kind of level of, of of images that, in many cases, simply do not even appear to be representing anything that we would put into a category. Um, that that is also something which is very important to understand around machine learning that it's built on these very shifting sands, if you will.
1: Hmm. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of um, listeners will be familiar with a lot of the critiques. Um, that that come in the form of you know uh, this um, facial recognition system is unable to detect darker skin faces or um, when you do a Google search for mathematician it's all pictures of uh, men uh, you know this kind of thing but but it sounds like the the thing that you're describing is quite a bit deeper than than those issues, because those issues are often solved by just saying, "Oh, let's add more you know uh um pictures of women into the data set. Let's add more different uh, pigment of of skin into the data set." You're saying it, that that is maybe a, some small type of solution, but we need to get rid of this notion that um images or phenomena in the world can be labeled with one you know kind of sticker at all. Because this completely reduces the, I don't know, the, the complexity and vastness of the human experience into something that is somehow now computational and far very far from intelligent. It's just a statistical kind of artifact. Would you say that's that's accurate?
0: That's perfectly said. And and in essence, you know, part of the reason that I say that the issue here isn't bias, is because we're actually looking at the deep practices of classification. You know, what is it? When we label a person like an object and and we give a person, you know, a, a gender or a race or a professional label based on their face alone, it is itself such a problematic practice. And it's been completely and totally naturalized within machine learning. You know, there are so many systems that you are using every day that are collecting images of your face and then classifying you into binary gender, you know, excluding all those who would see themselves as not within those categories, into, you know, one of four or five race categories, despite the fact that, you know, as so many scientists have shown, the idea of inherent biological race is itself a myth, um, into categories that are even assessing your sexuality, your emotions, and your potential criminality. You know, there are machine learning systems that have claimed to detect all of these things just in the last couple of years. And in fact, in the book, one of the things that I you know spend a whole chapter looking into is the history of emotion recognition in AI, this claim that by looking at your face Uh, You can see into, you know, somebody's inner soul. You can see what they're really feeling. Um, And it really, you know, it can be traced back to uh, the 1960s when psychologists like Paul Ekman were, you know, really promulgating the view that there were six universal emotions that could be read on the face. And despite the fact that this idea is extremely controversial and has been debated you know, since its inception from people like Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, right through till much more recently in you know, this year and last year, uh, psychologists like uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett have shown that there is simply no evidence to show that a smile means that you're happy or a frown means that you're angry. This Really problematic ideas nonetheless being coded into some of the systems that are being used to uh, decide whether somebody is going to be a good employee in a job interview. It's being used in healthcare contexts. It's being used in automotive contexts to see if a driver is being distracted or if they're angry while they're driving these are really problematic ideas that are unscientific at their core, that are nonetheless being built in as though they are just fact. And that's another one of the spaces where I think we have to bring much greater sort of critical capacity, but also legislative control to AI.
1: Yeah, that that chapter on um, yeah rec- recognition of the emotions from, from facial expression, I, I learned it ton from that I had never seen that kind of investigations before except perhaps in the historical literature on like uh, phrenology or physiognomy, the idea that you right. could you know look at someone's skull and tell if they would be a criminal. this is kind of really the uh, recapitulation of that for the 21st century.
0: It is it absolutely is.
1: I'd like to use the remaining just five minutes that we have to talk a little bit about yeah students or researchers or people who are interested in this subject. I know that over the last many years, a great number of people have been getting PhDs in machine learning or working in engineering. Do you view that the people working on, uh, I guess, the types of things you do, the, the, the philosophical, the historic, the legislative, the policy, um, enough people are doing that to match the number of people simultaneously uh, growing in number on the kind of uh, technical or, or corporate side of,
0: of this field? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're certainly not the uh, the same number and they're certainly not paid as well, <laughs> I can tell you that, um, certainly given the way that uh, machine learning engineers these days are very much on uh, some of the highest salaries on the planet. Um, look, you know, it's, it's very interesting as a question and, and, and to take it seriously is to say that I think that these ideas have now moved from being really sort of, I think, in the margins, certainly when I, I began doing work like this, you know, well over, you know, a a decade ago, to now really being part of of a more public conversation. And I think that's really important. And I'm actually finding more and more engineers and computer scientists are interested in also asking these sorts of questions and more critically engaging with the systems that they build. And they want to find ways to be able to push back when they're being asked to build things that they think are deeply problematic, such as you know, autonomous weapons or predictive policing systems or facial recognition systems. These, you know, the work of so many researchers and activists and you know, NGOs that are really trying to bring these issues to the forefront, I think it's starting to have an impact. The, the question is really going to be, you know, are we going to see the large companies that really decide how these systems are to be deployed and created? Are we going to see enough pressure on them to really change their practices? That's one of the big questions that I think is is going to play out over the next decade. The other big question, of course, is, you know, if we look at the tech sector, it is remarkably lightly regulated. We've had very little by way of even a federal sort of privacy structure in the United States. Um, we've had more progress in the EU and even in China has you know has stronger privacy guidelines than here in the US. Um, but we're starting to see a shift towards uh, omnibus regulation that's AI specific. So the EU has now got a draft AI Act that addresses so many of these questions from training data and what it represents through to facial recognition and how it should be controlled when it's being deployed. So in in that sense, I'm, I'm also really optimistic that by continuing to tell these stories publicly, by continuing to see this as ultimately a civil society issue, that we are going to start to see change at the level of how these companies are controlled and regulated but also what students today want to study and the things that they want to build and to think really consciously about the ways in which these systems can actually concentrate power into the same hands over and over again. And how do they actually consciously start to think about the ways in which these systems can be pluralized and can be really used in ways that will enhance human agency and creativity and potentiality, rather than to drive ever greater asymmetries of power and wealth.
1: Hmm. I think the last point you made touches really nicely on something that I experienced, which is that I teach a course on a lot of the topics we've been discussing today to mostly business and engineering students. And it's very challenging because on the one hand, I don't want to say, don't go into business, don't go into engineering. A lot of these students are extremely bright, very talented, good at engineering. They want to solve problems. They're very technically adept. And I think that's great. But the the, the difficult thing is that there aren't that many paths for them that use their skills in a way that doesn't make me cringe a little. <laughs> um, do you have advice for maybe even undergraduate students, or advice for me to give my undergraduate students, uh, that that could be helpful. Um, maybe something concrete uh, as, as we as we close out.
0: Mm. Such an important question, and and honestly, you know, one of the, the 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 great gifts I think of what it is to be studying these systems right now is to be given the freedom to ask hard questions, and that often comes from. Interdisciplinary groups, you know, from, as you say, you might be, you know, working with other students in business or in engineering, but, you know, including people who are coming from the perspective of, you know, the humanistic or social scientific contexts can actually mean that we're creating different kinds of conversations and different kinds of systems. I also think there's a, a really sort of growing sector of research centres and NGOs that are trying to increase justice in the use of these systems. Um, it, in you know, in the UK, for example, you have groups like the you know Ada Lovelace Institute. You know, there are multiple institutes now in the US um, doing this work. You know, I've I've co-founded one, but there are many, many others uh, that are bringing together people from different disciplinary orientations to think about the context of systems, to study them, and to really. try. Try to create a stronger framework for greater justice and ultimately greater accountability for how these systems are used. So, in that sense, I would you know really encourage people to to reach out to contact researchers to contact people who are creating labs that are really cognizant of these sorts of issues, and to realize that there is now you know a growing set of professions where these capacities, these questions, and these interdisciplinary ways of seeing are actually highly valued.
1: That's wonderful advice. Well, Dr. Kate Crawford, thank you so much. The book is Atlas of AI. Uh, this has been a wonderful con- conversation and there's even more great stuff in the book. So I encourage anyone listening to uh, to get a copy. Um, thanks again.
0: Thank you so much, Matthew. Pleasure to talk.